If you would open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 36. I'm reading out of the ESV. Hear God's word. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And said to them, thus it's written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They were continually in the temple blessing God. The word of the Lord. Amen. David writes... In Psalm 86, verse 11, these words. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Another translation says, says, give me an undivided heart to revere your name. Why would David say that? I mean, why in the world would he pray that? Give me an undivided heart. I know it's early in the message, but uh, it's a little quieter than I expected. I I suspect he said it for the reason we're going to talk about this morning. We have divided hearts, and we have divided hearts because we live in a world that has a problem with truth. Truth establishes incontrovertible boundaries within which we live and operate, especially if we want to enjoy life without penalty. But before I talk about everyone else's problem, I have to speak about my own. When I was growing up, Mom had a family rule, our truth, if you will. Actually, there were many rules, but this is the one in question this morning. During the summer after dinner, the expectation was that we were to come home when night fell, or in mom's words, when the street lights came on. 
Now, mind you, I was really good at finding loopholes in seemingly ironclad dictums. As it happened, I noticed that the streetlight closest to our house had gone out. The lights came on. I continued to play ball with my friends. Finally, Mom came looking for me. That normally had an extremely negative outcome. Immediately, she blurted out, I thought I told you to come home when the streetlights came on. I looked at her, smiled, and said, But Mom, our light isn't on. She looked, she stammered, she spluttered, and finally just threw up her hands and in a resigned voice said, Oh, just come home. You understand, we struggle with truth and and the boundaries that truth creates because it calls our feelings and choices into question. I mean, isn't the mantra of our time, if I feel it, it must be true? That is, truth is relative, and it's relative because my truth is more important than any other truth. Do you remember the correspondence theory of truth from school? This is your test. What's the correspondence theory? Eh, thank you for playing, congregation. The correspondence theory of truth teaches us that truth is that which corresponds with reality. Truth is what is real. There's not one truth for me and another truth for you. As Christians, we know this. We're quick to reference John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the what? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the end, despite our wishes that it wasn't so, despite our desires that it be otherwise, there is only one truth, right, that comes from one way, God's way, and leads to one life, God's life. Our world counters with, but truth isn't true for everyone. Here's the problem. There's a difference between objective truth and subjective truth, which changes subjective truth, changes because it's based on changing things, and objective truth, which doesn't change because it's based on that which is concrete, which is real, which is tangible, which is unchanging. Speaking of God's nature, the Bible says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Malachi 3.16. Now, why does God say that? Right? He says that because if God's nature was changing, His forbearance, His patience would run out. And what would happen to sinful, rebellious children like me who were really good at identifying the streetlight that's out to allow me to evade the boundaries that God has set for meaningful life. I mean, what would happen? We'd be toast. That's that's the reality of it. That's the the harsh news of it. Then then there's this. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same for how long? Yesterday, today, and forever. Right? According to Scripture, God is unchanging, objective reality. So let me walk you through an example. You are very allergic to peanuts. 
to the point that if you ate them, you'd have a severe reaction, potentially could put your life at risk. This is objective truth. Now, on the other hand, you love the taste, the texture, the smell of peanuts. And, and you decide that you like them so much that that objective reality isn't true. Right? And so as a result, you're going to eat them anyway. That is subjective truth. The problem is that that subjective truth doesn't affect the objective truth. Those peanuts you eat will still trigger an allergic reaction. In this case, subjective truth has trumped objective truth to a negative end. Objective truth doesn't change. Subjective truth does. It's always relative. Objective truth aligns with reality. A second example. If I were to divide the congregation into two groups, this side of the aisle, this side of the aisle, and give each group a set of directions to a treasure, a a box of enough world-class chocolate that everybody can have as much as they want, right? And then if I gave this side of the aisle directions that were accurate and this side of the aisle directions that weren't, What's going to happen? Well, this side of the aisle is going to be really delighted when they follow those directions and and find goodness at the end of it, right? This side of the aisle, particularly if you like chocolate, are probably going to come hunting me with tarn feathers. And, And you're going to come hunting me with tarn feathers for a very specific reason, right? The false directions you received offered something that seemed to promise good, but showed you that which wasn't real. Okay? This is critically important this morning. Luke's time also dealt with objective and subjective truth. Jesus had been crucified, an objective truth. Nobody survived crucifixion. It's a 100% death rate. Further, he had been certified dead by Roman soldiers who were extremely proficient at establishing death. Remember the testimony of the Gospels. To make sure he was dead, one of the soldiers took a spear and jammed it up under his ribs, piercing his heart so that we saw a flow of blood and water. Therefore, in the minds of those in power and those who had none, there were two questions for post-crucifixion appearances of Jesus. Two options. Jesus must be dead and the body stolen. A subjective truth because the only evidence that the body isn't in the tomb, which had been guarded by Roman soldiers. Now, in addition to our passage this morning, note Matthew 27, 62 through 66, and Matthew 28, 11 through 15 and the whistleblower testimony those passages contain. Right? Therefore, Jesus' supposed appearance in the mind of the authorities was a lie to advance some nefarious political end, and they worked on generating their truth, in quotes, subjective truth, to explain that end. Second, Jesus was a disembodied spirit. 
a common belief in the ancient world. Again, this is subjective truth. There's no objective, tangible way of testing it. Of course, there's a third option available. A third option is possible. Jesus is alive as he proclaimed he would be. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 16, 21. Luke answers the subjective with the objective. Watch. Jesus appears among them. We'll come back to this in a minute. Now note verse 38. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Jesus can be touched. His wounds can be felt, right? Um, Kathy will tell you, I have a proclivity for male genetic stupidity. I sometimes do things that aren't wise. So one, one day I was chainsawing without my ballistic chaps on, and the chainsaw bound when the tree began to break, and it kicked back, and it hit me in the knee. If you were to, through my pants, if you were to touch my knee, you can feel the ridge of scar tissue where the chainsaw hit me, right? There, there is something real and tangible always in objective reality. So, Jesus can be touched, his wounds felt, he's neither disembodied spirit nor corpse. Second, the story continues, and while they disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Jesus eats. I don't know about you, but disembodied spirits don't need to eat and the dead can't eat. Jesus reminds them, number three, of the attestation of the Old Testament. He said to them, these are the words I spoke to you while I was still still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And by the way, that phrase in the Psalms in um, the Hebrew world is sometimes shorthand for all of the rest of Scripture that's not the law or the prophets. So, Histories, writings, wisdom, literature, all the rest of it. So Jesus says, everything, right, testifies to me. To me. Throughout Scripture, the objective truth of Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, of his pre-existence. You can check that out in John 1, verses 1 through 5, right? His nature and power is revealed for those who would see and hear. Jesus walks the disciples through that recorded witness. Four, Jesus' glorified nature testifies to the truth of who he is, the predicted Messiah. Did you catch it as we read? As they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Jesus isn't bound by the laws of physics as we experience them in part in this life. But Jesus' uh, Jesus' appearance in the midst of them is utterly consistent with the law 
of physics, the laws of physics, as we now understand them, right? It aligns with string theory. Jesus doesn't open a door and walk into a room, right? He appears among them. And yet, having appeared among them, they can touch him, right? He eats. They, they can experience them the way we would experience each other this morning, face to face. All right. Remember what it says after this. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And when he blessed them, he parted for them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, as if all of this isn't enough, remember Paul's testimony. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers. And remember, in the Jewish world, Frequently, when they give numbers like that, it's only the males counted, right? So, how many folks are actually there? Double that? More than that, right? We've got a lot of witnesses here who have seen, heard, touched, smelled Jesus. All right. Then, Paul says... At the time of his writing, most of whom are still alive. And then he appeared to James and all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. You could hear, see, touch, smell Jesus. So, what are we going to do when presented with the reality of objective truth? Pastor Dave mapped out our path two weeks ago. He said, we come, we see, we stay experience, believe, we go, and we tell. So, why do we go and tell? Why is that piece in here? And so critically emphasized in the way it is. We tell because it's true, and and it's such a good and amazing truth that we just have to share it. The news that I can receive forgiveness for my sins and be restored to relationship with God is awesome news that needs to be shared, that needs to be heard. The reality that Jesus loves me where I am, as big a mess as I am, and and Kathy knows I'm a work in progress. Serious work in progress, right? The, the, The news that Jesus loves me where I am, but is not content to leave me there and acts to restore me to God's design intent is over-the-top news. It's, it's almost beyond belief it's such good news. How, you, how can you and I not share that? How can we not go tell? We tell because the truth of God's Word corresponds to reality better than anything our world affirms. Jesus told us, He said, Thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. 
And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. What's he talking about? The gift of the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. This is our mission. This is our task. This is our calling. To witness to the truth of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection so that others can believe and receive forgiveness of sins. We go and tell to everyone everywhere the glad truth of the gospel. That's what a witness does. He or she shares what they've heard, seen, touched, smelled, tasted, in short, what they have experienced. How does the psalmist say it? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Psalms 34, verse 8. Now, even better and more mind-boggling, Jesus commissions witnesses who deserted and denied Him. Think about that for a minute. Wrap your heads around that. You are my witnesses, right? And, And He says this, not just to the eleven who survive of the original twelve disciples. He says that to all of them. You are my witnesses. And in truth, haven't every single one of us at some point in our walk with Christ deserted or denied Him in some way. And yet, Jesus calls us to be His witnesses. Commissions us to be His witnesses. So how in the world are we going to do this? Right? I mean, making disciples of every nation requires telling and showing alone is not enough. But how are we going to do this? How can I do this? How can you do this? I don't know about you, but I'm not able. My memory isn't what it once was. My senses are failing, and Kathy can tell you, hearing and sight are foremost among them. And, 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 and the hearing piece is something more than, than, than selective hearing, right? Let's be clear. I'm not confident in my ability to faithfully witness because I'm aware of the inconsistency of my walk. I fear the reception my words will receive. And now add to this the compounding difficulty of witnessing to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in the current culture. And Jesus' charge becomes truly daunting. But hold on. Remember Jesus' words to the disciples here. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Acts 1.8 records Jesus saying, you're my witnesses. And, and then they had to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But now every day is a day of Pentecost for the one who has received God's gift of grace in Jesus Christ and believes and lives in Him. God gives us what is needed of His nature and power as we need it to show and tell the world about Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have no excuses. So what's the gospel we share? Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning 
from Jerusalem. It goes like this. God created the world and all that is in it. His design was flawless. Satisfied, he declared it good. You and I, people, the capstone of creation, he deemed very good. We walked in perfect relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, naked and unashamed in a garden. Creator, created, and creation were one. We knew no pain, no suffering, no loss, no heart-rending breach of relationship. Life was this way for untold seasons. Until suddenly it wasn't. And even though we had access to everything we needed for abundant life forever, we gave it up in pursuit of a lie. Instead of rejoicing in all that we had, we became fixated on what we lacked. One fruit from one tree in the middle of the garden. Now, you might wonder what the big deal is, because after all, it's only a piece of fruit. But this piece of fruit was a declaration of independence from God. Adam and Eve chose to, one, decide good and evil apart from God, and if the truth be known, apart from anyone else. Two, decided to doubt God's goodness. Three, chose to rebel against the Father's authority over us. Four, to reject His design purposes for us. And five, to choose self-deception, right? We thought we knew how to love better than the one who loved us into being. The Bible calls this sin. And so our hardwiring to be in relationship with God was replaced by relationship with lesser, finite things that couldn't satisfy, but that were given first place in their lives, in our lives. Brokenness is now seen and experienced in all things. It's evidenced in the, the struggling relationships that we have, in isolation, in addiction, in despair. It's seen in guilt, shame, and emptiness. It's displayed in the abuse of power and control. And sin spiraled and, and like a tornado grew bigger and bigger. But we never completely forgot what had been. Ecclesiastes 3.11 makes this observation. It says, Also, he's put eternity into a man's heart, yet so that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Do you hear it? Despite the fall, we retain the lingering yearning for what was. The love, place, position, and purpose that only God can give. While we are the pinnacle of God's created work, we aren't God. Not happening. We never will be. We're finite. We're limited. And it's impossible for us to replace an unlimited God. And so we hunger for what was. Now, our stories would end in the most tragic, unsatisfactory of ways, but our Heavenly Father wouldn't allow that. Despite our distrust and rebellion, He loved us enough to send His Son on a search and rescue mission. So Jesus took on flesh, surrendered all of his heavenly prerogatives and became one of us. Sinless, he suffered abuse, crucifixion and death on a cross to secure our freedom from sin and death. He paid the price our sin had incurred. And he did this so that we could be restored to full relationship with God. So that God's image and likeness could be restored in us beginning right here and now for those who 
receive and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Understand, we were created for relationship with God. How does the psalmist say it? Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Psalm 90, verse 1. We were made to be at home with Him. Jesus said it even more clearly. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many what? Rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to Myself. Does it get any better than this? That where I am, you may be also. Now, there's one more part of the story. Imagine, we can be like Jesus. He's our prototype. So Paul says in Colossians 1.15-21, remember, he talks about Jesus twice as the firstborn. That's the Greek word for prototype, prototokos. Right? Jesus is the prototype for us. That's what we were intended to look like. That's the nature we were designed to show to each other and the world and God. Put another way, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can love like God does. How does John say it in 1 John 4, verses 7-12? through 12, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, big word, the redemptive payment, that's what it means, required to restore relationship, right? The propitiation for our sins. God's love is so different from ours. It doesn't affirm, God doesn't affirm what you or I feel. Instead, God lays down His own self-interest for the sake of another. It places the other's spiritual and physical life with God first and foremost. So, let me, uh, let me show you something that helped me. In this. Go tell. How are we going to do that? Remember, the first circle is God's design. He created the world perfect. Everything is in perfect relationship. We are in perfect relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are in perfect relationship with each other. We are in perfect relationship with creation. But lo and behold... That only lasts until the day we decided not to, right? And then what happens? Sin enters the world. We experience brokenness in every way. Addictions, damaged relationships. I mean, we can go on and on and on in the way that, that brokenness is seen and experienced. And so where the reality of life was that we were one, now because of sin... We're separated. Everything is broken. Everything is damaged. Everything is divided. But, but, we think to ourselves, 
We can do it, right? And so we apply our best effort toward coming together, toward being one. But there's a problem, right? In a world of sin, where everything is damaged and broken, even our best effort looks like what? It's, it's twisted. It's divided. It's broken. And even though we can sort of come together, we're still not one. Now, second circle. So we've seen first circle, our design, second circle, our brokenness. There's a third circle. What's the third circle? What? Say it again. A Mobius strip. Would you like to explain that? It's a continuous surface. Continuous surface, yeah. So, so, so how, how do we get from broken back to one? That's the third circle of the story. What does God do for us? What does God do? Talk to me. Bark it out. Be loud. Be bold. We're going to go tell. What? He takes our punishment. Through whom? Jesus Christ. Right. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so, by God's grace, through God's power, in Jesus Christ our Lord, we can be what? One. Now, now, I want to make sure you got this. So that third circle means we're going to spend our lives pursuing God, right? So that we can become, again, what He intended. We're going to walk with Him. We're going to, we're going to, we've talked about it last week. We're going to delight in His Word. We're going to pray and speak and talk and be in relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Because if we don't do that, and sometimes even when we're doing it, because our old natures are so stubborn and intractable, here's the reality of life in our world. I think this circle's getting bigger. <laughs> Here's the reality of life in our world, right? If we don't stay in pursuit of God, in relationship with God, right? We're not going to be in relationship with each other. And what's going to happen? Life's going to go back to being in a knot. So, brothers and sisters, here's, here's the reality of life in our world, whether you like it or not. Right? Jesus commissioned imperfect folks like you and me 
to do something. What? What? Go into the world and tell. In your going, make disciples. Go tell. That's how you do that. And, and you tell, remember, in both word and deed, word and action, which are consistent, right? Why? Why do we do that? We have a charge to accomplish by God's power, through God's grace. So, go tell. Tell your family and friends. Tell your neighbors and co-workers. Tell your associates and the strangers you meet. Tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. The story of God's work in the world as told in the Bible corresponds with reality better than anything else I've read, anything else I've heard, anything else I've experienced. And Kathy can tell you, I read a lot. I listen a lot on my good days. And, and I've experienced a lot, right? And I'm telling you, this story corresponds with the truth of what's happening in the world better than anything I've seen, more accurately than anything I've seen, more concretely, more practically, more purposefully. So, go tell your family and friends. Go tell your neighbors and co-workers. Tell your associates and the strangers you meet. Tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. Tell them the story of God's work in the world as told in the Bible, corresponds with reality better than anything else they're going to find. And tell them that because this story has grace sufficient for my need, love great enough to live out of, a hope that's unquenchable, a faith that's unshakable. This is the truth in which we stand and through which we fully live. So go tell. Go tell.